Organissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair, and beauty source, and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best, straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today at www.arganissima.com. Arganissima, New York. Your beauty is our duty. Arganissima, New York. Welcome back to the iHealth channel with your host, Hurricane H, a new show, new day, new, day, new topic, and a new guest. And um, this is almost like a sequel to a different, to a similar topic I've discussed about a few months ago. And it, it keeps coming up in my discussions with people, and people always reach out, and they, and I see it also in society and in our world that we live in. It's the, the impact of, of racism over uh, our health, mental health, physical health, and in general, in how people are perceiving life when they are affected with such, you know, a dilemma of racism, and it's real. And I think racism, everybody can understand what that is, and we're going to define it today with our guest. And she is the founder of Ascribe uh, Educational yeah. Consulting, and, and she is going to tell us about her services and her work. She's also an author and a writer with books pending, you know, their introduction hour. Maybe, maybe they're already out. We'll talk about that. But I think the impact of mental health is important. In, in, in general. And and anything that affects our health, mentally or physically, is key. We are on the health, the iHealth channel, iHealth Radio. And, you know, we talk about physical and different, you know, things, psychiatry, you know, uh, you know, topics. This is along the same lines, but it comes from a different angle. So without further ado, I have with me, Sonia Lewis. How are you? Welcome to the show. I am so excited and I'm honored to be here with you and um, just to be able to talk and share the information with your platform and your audience is an amazing thing. Well, thank you. And yes, we, we, we need that. You have the expertise, you have the knowledge and, and you have actually, you know, firsthand experience of this, this big, you know, it's a problem. <laughs> there is not no other way to look at it. Uh, there are reasons behind it and, you know, we're going to potentially tackle some of those. It affects us in our day lives, yeah. whether you're in, in, in having fun or you're at work. It affects how we see ourselves in, in real society. And is it is not just, I think, in the U.S., it's all over the world. I mean, yeah. in some parts more than others. Uh, in the U.S., I mean, there's certainly uh, an increased level when it comes to white versus black. And, and yeah. that's a big one. There's also the indigenous you know, communities and things like that around the world that have a similar aspect. Uh, if you go to Europe, it's it's got North Africans and, and Europeans. There's that big conflict there. I mean, I experienced it personally. I can tell you about that. Uh, so there is that. And and but for an individual that has not experienced it, they might not understand what it is. But but let's talk about that today. But before we go there, I'd like you to give us an introduction about you, your your platform, your services, at the for profit and not for profit. Also, we'll talk about your books later on. But I want you to relate us your story when it all started when you were seven yeah. years old. So, so go for it. It's so interesting. I always start with seven-year-old Sonia because seven-year-old Sonia is still one of those little girls who whisper in my ear and, and gives me motivation to do the things that I do today. And so I tell the backstory that my mom is a Midwest girl from you know the projects of Chicago. Her family was forced into the projects, forced to because of intimate domain and the building of the freeway system here in America. Black communities were impacted and, and, and the government had to decide where are we going to build these freeways to connect all these cities and they always chose a black um, community to demolish and then relegated those people into poverty because it was hard enough to, to, um, to attain property ownership. My dad, on the other hand, is a good old Southern boy from the state of Texas. And um, he is one of 13 siblings who were all born at home. And so I always share those pieces because one, my, my mother was relegated to the projects um, and had racism in one kind of way. My father, on the other hand, was born at home and, and his family couldn't didn't uh, weren't afforded the the 
put um, the opportunity to have access to the, the health system. And, and so children were born at home. And so both of them made their ways by migrating to California and, and met and wanted to not live in the, the shadows of the racism that they experienced as children. And so my parents were very intentional on sending my sister and I to schools that were primarily white. Um, and so that meant that we didn't go to neighborhood schools. And I woke up one day when I was seven years old and I said, I don't want, I don't feel good about saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And, you know, sometimes people, it pop, makes them pause and they say, oh my God, that's so un-American of you. At seven, Unfortunately, for Black children in this country, they are they go through an experience called a, now a term that we have coined as adultification. And that means that as young people, our childhood is taken away from us. We're given the responsibility to understand adult perspectives more readily than our peers, our white peers, our Latinx peers, our API Asian um, peers and our immigrant peers, right? Our childhood is literally taken from us. And that has been a theme historically um, that psychologists in this country have been studying since the time of slavery and emancipation. And so I can just remember that saying the Pledge of Allegiance didn't feel sit right in my spirit. And I said, liberty and justice, just that one line alone, the last word line of the Pledge of Allegiance, liberty and justice for all, liberty and justice for all. Well, that doesn't happen to people who look like me in my community, in my family. And so I, my mom says that was my first, you know, form of protest. And Hence, that is now what the, the, the current book that is coming out is called Monsters and Aliens. Um, my teacher at the time period, I used to go home and tell my mom, she's a monster. And I also considered myself when I was a kid, an alien in the, in the sense that I feel like aliens have to shape shift um, and, and conform to whatever environment that they're in, in order to fit in. And so hence the title of the book, Monster and Aliens, and it tells the story of seven-year-old Sonia. And I oftentimes relate that, and, and, and I tell stories in a roundabout way, very um, griot-like, which is indicative of the African experience, right? In that we, we have to bring these layers in and connect the dots. And so how I then approached education was I want to do everything possible to be the best student that I can be so that I can be impactful to my community and bring something back. And so I can remember going, graduating from high school and I said to myself, oh my gosh, I've done all the things that I wanted to do. I've done all these awards. I, you know, graduated with honors. And I'm accepted into schools like Berkeley and Stanford and, and UCLA and NYU. Um, but my choice school was a historically black college, Spelman College, which my great, great grandfather um, was the pastor of the church where Spelman was founded. And so for personal reasons, I wanted to lean into that legacy. And I was told that um, from a, an advisor of mine, my, my um, senior advisor, he said, Sonia, you're practicing, he accused me of practicing reverse racism because I chose not to attend one of the schools that he recommended that I attend. And so I get to Spelman and I'm, you know, the, California is the greatest state in the nation in the sense that we've been for a long time, number five in the in largest economy in the world. So we could be our own country economically. And we're graduating, this was 30 plus years ago, students who look good on paper, but they can't compete with students from other states. And so I took my college entrance exams and I failed. First time in my educational career that I failed at anything. And I took it personal and I, I wanted to understand why that happened. If I'm coming to a school, I have a high GPA and done well on SAT and ACT tests, why did I fail this exam? And so that's what I began to, to examine and, and go into professionally. Um, I became a high school history teacher, have a degree in history and psychology. I have a master's degree in education and a secondary teaching credential. And I did that for about 20 years, a little less than 20 years. And I said to myself, if I'm going to, it wasn't an if, I knew that it would come a time where I wasn't going to retire a teacher and I would need to do something else. Um, 
what am I going to do? And so I said to myself, I'm going to do something that's equity re related. My students and parents, when I left the classroom, were calling upon me to still help and be impactful with their matriculation from high school to the real world. And that's where I really started Ascribe Educational Consulting and got my footing and got it off the ground. <laughs> that's a pretty pretty comprehensive intro there and i and, and I, I see a lot of angles there and we yeah. we, we we want to dissect that uh, into different levels right so so seven year old sonia experiencing her first entry into the school system or i guess that was just as as you started and that was your first protest as you said and and you're right i mean liberty and justice for all is a big term it's a big you know concept yeah. and looking at it from your eyes from your from your parents from their backgrounds to your point you said it you know your mom chicago and this whole thing with eminent domain and and impacting you know always the the black community right so yeah. so you had already had those i guess someone can say well because you had these experiences or at least you heard about them you already like you know pretty much resistant or yeah. uh you know uh rebel <laughs> i would say at that point and 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 now you're you also you, you were going to a, a a non I guess a more white school right that that's that's the key and someone can ask well why why yeah. specific, why did you pick that school why your parents wanted you to be there and not a more I guess diversified school uh, now I know that probably the answer to that because I mean you want you want to be you know able to reach and do the stuff and and almost challenge everyone and show that you can do it as equally as everybody else Absolutely. And I think that's where it started right. And that, listen, that's all our parents. They want us to be the best that we can be, whatever we can. And, and if there is a school, even if an elite school, we want to be part of it. Yeah. I, that, I think that's, that's important. So let's, let's just take that for a minute and just break that down. So your experience, uh, your, I mean, I know eventually in time, you realize why that was made, well, yeah. you know, intentionally, why were you put in that school specifically? And so how did you feel about that as, as, as you were growing up and as you were facing the reality of the monsters? Yeah. <laughs> and we gotta, I love the monsters and aliens, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. You know, it was interesting at a, as a child, especially in elementary school, I didn't, I never asked why. Why are we not going to the, the neighborhood school where all of mm. my neighborhood friends who were, you know, we lived in, unfortunate, during the 70s, we lived in a Black community and it wasn't as, you know, um, um, diverse. Um, and, and as you cross across one major street, um, it went into a white neighborhood. And my mom's philosophy literally was, I am going to put you in the best situation possible because I feel as though my children are brilliant and I want them to be able to have the resources, not necessarily the people weren't the key, but the resources were the key. And so she learned early on that resources funnel into schools based on the community. And so the tax base in that community and, and that there are going to be things afforded at those schools that are not going to be at the urban schools. And so she figured that out early on. And, and, and I, ne I never questioned it. I just was like, why, you know, I'm one of, you know, three or four, maybe five, you know, black kids at this school. And I'm going to show you who I am as an individual. So I think my focus was me, the individual, rather than the, the school and the collective of students that I was um, in environment with. I do remember, however, when um, I did stage that protest, my teacher said, I thought you were one of the good ones. And even hearing that thin at age seven, it didn't click to me, right? Until later on in life, maybe around junior high, I was like, what did, what did that teacher mean when ones. she said one of the good ones? Yeah, she, she said that to me, but it stuck with me, right? Um, if you're watching right now, a lot of people may be watching the Kaepernick story on um, Netflix. He experienced that same thing where a teacher said to him, I thought you were one of the good ones. And it triggered something in me. I was like, so other kids who just so happen to apply themselves academically across this country, across generations, right? Because I'm older than Kaepernick. Um, have had that same experience in that same category, putting some putting us in boxes as if we are performance animals, as if you know, um, you know, we have to fill this this box of being exceptional. And and I think that kids, all kids, just want to be themselves and have permission to thrive the way that they learn, thrive the way that they um, heal, um, and just show up authentically in their own skin. Well. 
that is that is a fact and you, you're right and doesn't matter what's your background i mean as a kid you want to be just and we see it at early on like if you yeah. see kids in a park there is no difference you know they're just kids they play and then as you start introducing yourself or introduced to the actual world you know in in school and then from there it goes to you know work and everything things become a lot more difficult you know Absolutely. for for depending on who you are and where you're from and what your language what your status all these things become you know very relevant now you as as a child you know that must have had a serious impact to see that you were already being labeled as different or like yeah. you know that i mean that experience itself could be very very uh, has a big you know I guess mental effect that you know Absolutely. now the good news i think that the, the great news is that you didn't take it for granted you actually worked to you know to prove everybody that you can do better and gonna do more and help people eventually Absolutely. and, and you did it and you had options and you also really you, you stuck to your the, the roots and and to the, the history your great-grandfather you know and, and 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 that was that was actually very noble in itself because that's something that's important Absolutely. but but now you said you were one of five in the school? I think one of five in the school, and I will tell you this little caveat is probably at around age 10, I came home and I said, mom, I want to change my name to Jennifer. Jennifer was this, this um, brunette, beautiful brunette white girl at my school. And she was super popular. And she got picked first for everything. Um, the teachers picked her first for, you know, I, I, I thought I was smarter than Jennifer, but I just, because Jennifer's name always came up in the topic of conversation when it was time for awards, it was like, I had to work two and three times harder just to get recognized. Um, even though I was getting better grades and I knew I was smarter and I had to answer quicker than Jennifer, I recognized at approximately age 10 that there was a difference. And so I came home one day and I said, mom, I want to change my name to Jennifer. Call me Jennifer from here on out. And she asked me why. And I never said I wanted to be a, you know, white like Jennifer. I just said, because Jennifer is popular and Jennifer gets picked first for everything. Um, whereas I do know that mentally and psychologically, we have peers, I have peers, my children have peers who have made statements like, I want to be white, right? If you are of, of a different race. And so that's something that definitely leans into what you're, you're speaking to is that that's where the, the seed planting begins as to if we're worthy enough, if we're good enough, if we're smart enough. And that plays an impact on our mental um, capacity. Well, it's, it, it inhibits you. I mean, if, you, if you're always told that you're not good, you're different, or you're less valuable than anybody else. I mean, you know, sometimes people, what you hear is what you believe, right? Absolutely. I mean, it becomes reality. And, and I think that's a big problem, you know, for folks that, you know, sometimes people are subjected to it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And if you hear long enough everywhere, you know, you stand to almost believe it and you just make it okay. You know, it becomes yeah. okay, which is not okay. No. <laughs> you know, but unfortunately it it's has been now in your case, I mean, you're talking about the seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Uh, that is, that is a, uh, there, there was a lot of movement, but, but we were still nowhere close to today. I mean, right. we're, we've made a lot of strides, I think in, in terms of race and 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 i guess acceptance and all these things you know but still we're not even close to where we need right. to be across the board but but we're definitely much better than I mean, some people may even say no we're still in the same spot but yeah but, but that that's i guess that's a perspective but but the idea is you had to experience that and by the way i while we're talking about your experience and and the black community you know as as a as a focus here that's actually been in in a lot of different you know groups not absolutely just, you know, a lot of religions, groups, uh, you know, uh, if you're a new immigrant, you're pretty much, you know, uh, marginalized to a degree. Yeah. People make fun of you. If you have a little bit of accent, forget yeah. about it. You know, uh, there, there, there's a lot of that. And, and it continues. I mean, listen, my kids are born here and they, they're just as American as they can get. You know, and people still make fun of them because of their name and because of their beliefs. Sometimes they even they don't feel that they want to share their religion because yeah. they're afraid that people are going to tell them stuff, with, which they do make comments. I mean, my son sometimes comes in, oh, oh, what do you got? Well, you got a bag in, what, what's in your bag? I mean, you know, and, you know, we're, we're happen to be Muslims. And so that, that's what, what's the, the connotation, especially after 9-11, that's become right. the, the stereotype. So I, I can, I can agree. I can see exactly that feeling from like my son has been experiencing some of that. Now he makes light of it yeah. because he wants to belong. He doesn't want to be like marginalized or like, you know, fight back. So it's just like, it's okay. I'm not even going to pay him no mind. Right. But, but you're right. Sometimes people make a stand. 
That's it. No, enough is enough. We're not taking this. I'm not yeah. gonna take this. And and that's actually a challenge. And and that affects people because while my son, for example, doesn't you know react to it, it's still in him because yeah. that's how he came to us and said, This is what I don't want to tell them what I do. I don't want to tell them I believe, I don't want to tell my holidays because every time I say that, they stop making fun of me. Or yeah. or they say, you know, Allah Akbar and say, you know, so they make jokes about it, but it's not funny. No. <laughs> you know, recently more, I mean, with the pandemic, and we'll talk about the pandemic in a minute, with what we've seen with the Asian, you know, community, right? You know, right. With, the, with the racism there. And I, and I think there's a show with, with uh, someone that, that will be coming in to talk about that, that situation in terms of mental health in that community. And, but, but I think these are very similar, you know, uh, experiences. I have seen this experience myself in Europe, being yeah. of North African, you know, background. You know, when I used to go, when I was a kid in early 80s, I used to go to Europe and I've seen it, you know, live where racism was just as real as you can, like you, they used to call me, hey, African, that's what they used to call me. (laughs) You know, as a kid, I'm like, hey, I would go back to them and say, hey, you're racist, (laughs) you know, and we were friends, but, but it was just that, it's like, that's how the label was. Yeah. And, you know, it sticks with you. Like you've seen that it's, it's, it's important. Now I know you took the route of going exceeding succeeding and ultimately going back to teaching yeah you wanted to bring something back to the table to teach people equitably and things like that yes now now you said a key word which is well a key concept you know you have to work three times more than jennifer <laughs> or I mean, we, we're talking jennifer here just as an example but yes but as everybody else why do we have to do that that's a good yes. question people will probably ask why I mean, in your in your expertise and, and your work that you do, I'm sure you have an answer to the why and, and yeah. why not. We shouldn't be, but but why people have to really do it. It shouldn't I, be that way. It shouldn't be that way. And unfortunately, it is. I, I think that I know that. I don't want to say I think. I know that children rise to the expectation of the adults that are in the room. And so if you have low expectations of Black, Brown, poor, LBGTQ, foster youth, they will only do what that you are expecting them to do. Um, Whereas if you are expecting um, their counterparts that just so happen to be white, who are just as, you know, intelligent um, and and you have higher standards for them, they will rise to that occasion. And so that's part of the marginalization. It's you can only be a janitor. Or if you go to a counselor and you say, I I think that I want to be a lawyer or I want to be president of the United States. Oh, maybe you should think about becoming a nurse. Or maybe you should be, think about becoming a secretary, right? Those conversations have been had in the educational arena for a long time. So I know that young people, they strive, they achieve based on the people who are in the room instructing, or I say the people who have the keys to the castle, or they're holding the power bag. And so we have to really and truly have conversations with educators around what it means to raise the bar for all students. And what does that look like? And as we are raising the bar for all students, how do we then become culturally responsive as well as, because it's, it's one thing to show up and say, oh, I want to bring in and make sure that you understand the folks that are in the room, we're going to make sure that they feel comfortable because then we're going to include their history. The other piece to that is making sure that people feel like they belong because belonging in and of itself it impacts productivity. And so if the, if the, at the end of the day, you want everyone to strive and everyone to have good success, you have to make sure that you are including the needs of the most vulnerable in community. And that will include the needs of all people in community. Thank you, Sonia. So, so, so we're talking education and I guess the lack of equity in education. <laughs> And the lack of, you earlier mentioned something about resources, that the resources are not, you know, I guess, given equal, equitably to all the communities. And, right. and so, you, you know, some areas will have more, I guess, uh, access to resources that may be in the, in the poorer, you know, uh, environment, whatever. Again, when I say poor here, it's, it's, it's almost a stereotype, but that's, yeah. that's how it's being labeled, right? You know, you'll have, and by, we're talking about minorities, right? And, yeah. and that's where it becomes like almost like, well, these schools have less and less, you know, access to, you know, even basic elements in the lab and, you know, uh, gyms, you know, the, the buildings are not, you know, where they need to be. Now, that's a systematic thing. You know, 
in, I know you're involved in a lot of this and, you know, there, there's politicians that are out there working day in, day out to, to make a difference. And again, it depends what county, what state, you yeah. know, that you're in, things are different, you know, and, and the scope can be literally, you know, different from one, one county to the other, literally. Absolutely. So, so what is the work that's being done today to, to make a difference? You know, that's an interesting question. I think that what has come out of, and, and I want to be very intentional about the current time that we are living in under the umbrella of COVID and what that forced us to realize. COVID made us realize those margins. COVID um, forced us to see where the inequities were. COVID, when the school shut down, and I'm using that as an example, but this trickles into the workplace. This trickles into um, our access to resources, right? And so when the schools closed down, some schools knew that it was going to be nearly impossible to make sure that their students had access to technology because all students across the board didn't have a computer or a laptop or a tablet to log into their classes. Not only did they not have the physical things to log on, they didn't have the infrastructure like um, you know, Wi-Fi access to even log on to. And so there began this huge conversations from a political aspect, those people who hold the power, the folks who are, you know, our economic brokers, like the Bill and, and, and Melinda Gates of the world who said, okay, if we really want to impact education, we really have to make sure that these areas that don't have the resources get the resources. So that was one part of the conversation. What we also realized um, due to COVID, it, it was like taking off a band to a wound that really and truly required surgery. And I say that facetiously because it's, it's a concept that people can, you know, galvanize around. But the reality is America has never healed from the wounds of racism because they intentionally attempted to sweep it under the rug. You had a group of individuals who were the founding fathers. They were white men. They, they continue to this day to try to keep the power within that arena and usurp anyone else from entering into those spaces. And so we really and truly have to have a reckoning. And I say that that came to the forefront, not just when COVID hit, but it was COVID plus the murder of George Floyd, right? And I know that having conversations about race and racism and white supremacy and implicit bias, it becomes a very very uncomfortable and, and challenging conversation for some people because a lot of people are at this place where they're like, I'm not racist. And my question to you is, if you're not racist, how are you anti-racist? Because every day, every day, every minute, every hour, we need to be doing things that are anti-racist in order to make sure that all people feel included in the perspective of this country. Well, Sonia, that's, that's, that's an important, you know, transition right there, because this you know, there's a lot, like to your point, there's a lot of people out there that could be white or different, you know, uh, background, but they they would literally state and and, and claim, you know, as, as as they believe that they're not racist, they yeah. love everyone equally, uh, and it should, nothing to their fault, they're not in power, they're not yeah. in charge. And I think that's, that's the other part, because I think uh, you mentioned something about reverse, you know, uh, racism and stuff. You know, there, there are some people that can throw that back and say, well, there is racism goes two ways yeah. uh, because, you know, the black community has been affected this much. You know, I guess there's a sentiment that, you know, it's reversed to a degree, which is not necessarily true, but that could be an argument. The other argument is, well, if one percent is racist, we're not, you know, and right. we support our, you know, uh, black community, our Latino community, our everybody. Right. And so, and, and we've seen it actually, people go out, they stand, you know, in demonstrations and in all colors, right? And they, they stand strong with, with, with different, you know, groups. And that's, that's awesome. But, but to your point, how do you prove that you're anti-racism? Now, now, I would like you, if you don't mind, to share with us some of the key elements, because some people may not know what to do, how to do it. Because yeah. I mean, it is, it is, it's, it's almost like difficult for someone to realize that they're not, or they are one. I mean, obviously if you are, you are, I mean, a right. racist person knows that there is, they just right. hate, hate people by, by default. And that, that is not a cool thing. And they can demonstrate it just by their, their behavior. But right. people, people don't have that. They, they do mingle, they love, they have friends from all over walks and, you know, backgrounds, but, but what, what do they do? What would you, you know, advise people to do as steps to be part of the solution and, and, and really make a difference. 
Absolutely. And I appreciate you for that question, because at the end of the day, the reality is we have to have a shared understanding and language and a shared sense of value and commitment to what it means to debunk or demystify the ugliness that is racism. So first, I always start off with my work with Ascribe. We always start off with shared language, like let's get to the root of what racism is. Racism has three elements. It is a group of people or an individual who has the power based on who they are in society. So a person has power and that power can come in the form of where you stand in community or with dollars. And you can take away or limit access to another group of people based on their race. So mm -hmm. I oftentimes I ask in, in some of my um, facilitation sessions, I say, I ask people, can you know black folks or Latinx folks or indigenous folks, can they be racist? It has to have those three elements. And yes, some people will say, well, Oprah Winfrey could be racist. You're right, but can, she has power and influence, she has money, right? But can she marginalize an entire group of people of one race? And as one black woman who just happens to be a millionaire, billionaire, I, I don't even know what her status is, but she got a lot of money. She yes. got a lot of money, right? Yeah. But she cannot, and still, still as a black woman, even though she's a millionaire, billionaire, cannot impact the livelihood of a whole race of people. That's what racism is. And so let's take that a step further. I do not believe that people are intentional racists. I believe that we've all been conditioned to buy into this system, play our parts in perpetuating the system, and therefore we don't know what to do. And the beautiful thing that has come out of, I tell you, COVID has exposed a lot of things, COVID plus George Floyd, right? And so a lot of folks came together and they were in the streets during, you know, at the aftermath of George Floyd's um, murder. And so now it has challenged people to say, now what? And so I tell people, you can be an ally, an ally oftentimes, and, and I'm not a fan of allies. Allies are those folks who can go home, close the doors, draw up the blinds and be like, I did my good deed for the day. I did, I volunteered. I threw up some hashtags. I got friends who are black. That's not enough. And so I tell people, I don't care what walk of life you come in. I am a dark skinned black woman. So I am one of the most marginalized groups of people on the face of the earth. And so, um, I still have privilege. I have the privilege of having a college degree, being married, having children who have been born into a two-parent household. We have multiple cars, we own homes. That's privilege. I have to use my privilege to help someone else who doesn't have privilege and access. And that's the part of being anti-racist. And so I say, I am of the, the mindset that when we fix racism and just how we interact with each other based on race, it will fix sexism. It will fix the economic strife that we have with, that divides our country. It will fix all of the isms that we get so hung up on. You know, when we talk about homophobia, when we talk about Islamophobia, when we talk about xenophobia, all of those isms will get fixed if we fix racism. But we have to start there. People have to trust that there's an intention that comes from the top mm -hmm. to the bottom. And this government has failed to do that at the top. And so the bottom does not trust that it's going to happen. And so the bottom is now reacting. The bottom is leaning in on their strength of being grassroots organizers and revolutionaries. And revolutionary doesn't have to be seen in a negative sense. Revolution at the core of its definition means change. Revolution means change so much that I love this place that I'm in that I want to change it for the better for everyone. That's what revolution means. And so that's the things that people can do. If you, if you asking me, what can people do to be anti-racist? We can do a step further from being an ally and think about what my privilege is and then afford that privilege to someone who has less privilege than you. That's powerful. And, and you're right. I mean, but you know, I, I'm listening to you and, and you're right. People have different definitions of what that help would be. Yeah. And you're right. I think the more the, the easy way is is I support the, the cause. I am I'm for the cause, but maybe not doing enough for the cause. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I am. Uh, you know, I, I, I support my friends. I stand by them morally, you know, mentally, but maybe not financially. There's that. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, so so you're right. But so before I, I move on from this, I wanted to just, you know, ask this question. How because I think this is this is important. Racism versus hatred, hatred or hate. 
Yes. Because I think I think a lot of people would would you know almost make those two one. And you just defined racism without hate. Absolutely. <laughs> so 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 why is it that we always think hate is racism? And by the way, hate goes for every every background. You know, there are people Absolutely. that just hate everything. They hate humans. They hate you know aliens. They hate you know animals. Just just the concept of hate is just when you just don't like anything, right? Yeah. Or yeah. or some specific thing. But but you just literally gave us a definition that doesn't have hate in it. It no. just has a system, you know, of principles that do make people marginalized versus others. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a very important, you know, piece, I think even from the show today to take, because that actually affects, you know, the people. Absolutely. And, and anyone out there is, you know, because they can say, I'm not, you know, I don't hate anyone. Right. But 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 yet you can be contributing to that marginalization. Right. Yep. Uh, I work. So you have power. You run a division. You run, you know, and are you does your team have a, a very equitable, you know, you know, a number of people from all walks and colors? Right. Or is it just a particular, you know, look and feel? You know, yeah. so that could be just as simple as that. And people sometimes have the authority to make that decision and they have candidates and they get to pick and choose. Yeah. And and that and there's nothing you can do. I mean, it's it's a person may may not feel it because they they do this in style, right? Yeah. You know, and and, and in the business world, in equity and, and at the, the the job sites, you know, is, is a big deal, and we can talk about that also. Yeah. So I think I think if you can just give us your impression between uh, the the concept of race, which you define, and hatred. Or Absolutely. Hate so hatred is intentional, right? So I love that because there is a huge difference and a gap between someone being racist or having racist behavior thoughts and beliefs, um, which I, again, I want to say that we've been conditioned to accept these as norms. Hatred is taking it a step further. That is the intentionality of, I'm specifically going to do this because you are this. And, and that's, those are the people, that's, in my opinion, the 10% or so, right? Those are the people who, I, I don't want to have a conversation with your grandpa who, you know, and, and I, I use this story all the time. My kids are in the wrestling world. Um, wrestling is not as a diverse um, sport as people would think it is. And so my boys have done very well. And I can remember when my now 20 year old um, was about 16 and he was going to the state championship and he beat this kid from a neighboring school and his grandfather was sitting in the stands and he called his grandson over who my son had just beaten in, in a match. And he said, I know you didn't lose to one of them. And I'm sitting there like arms distance. And I stand up and I said to one of who? And his daughter stood up and she said, he didn't mean it like that. I said, he absolutely did. To me, that is someone who is very intentional about their hate for a specific group of people because he's made a choice that he's identified one of them is not good, but you are and you're better than that. And you should be able to beat one of them. Whereas his daughter was trying to make consolidation and consideration and excuses for, to a certain degree, the fact that her father was being very racist. And so there is a huge difference. And so I say to folks, when we're talking about just the scope of take yourself out of the equation, don't make it a personal issue. Because when we're talking about racism, we're talking about systems. We're talking about structures. We're talking about institutions that we didn't build. We are just the benefactors or the, the um, collateral damage of something that was built centuries ago. And so take yourself out of the equation. Don't take it personal. And I know that that's hard. One of the things that has come up in this time period is this ideation of white fragility and white privilege. And a person can turn on their tears because they don't understand and that is mental and psychological as well. So if we're, we're really getting down to the, the nuts and bolts of this, this conundrum, on both sides of the aisle, folks are suffering mentally, physically, because mental health affects our physical health. Um, and we just don't know it because we all have been conditioned to perpetuate the system of racism. And so that's the thing. So actively having conversations, but not belaboring the people who are on the, the brunt end of the stick. So those of us who suffer from it and, and get the, the hard, you know, toss of the ball at us, don't make us, you know, the ones that always have to come up and give you the answer to ask to, 
oh, is this racist? I get that question. I have a, a very, very good white girlfriend and I love her to death. And she has um, mixed nieces and nephews. And she always, she comes to me and she says, I want to ask you this question, but I don't want you to, you know, to bite my head off. And I'm like, is this something that you can Google? That's always going to be my question because Google is your friend. We live in an age where you can find these things out. And if you think it's going to trigger an experience that I may have had, and you know that I probably have had because of the race that I am, because of the gender that I am, because of the economic, where I come from economically, then ask yourself, could that potentially trigger the person who's been marginalized? Again, use your privilege to do the labor, to do the heavy lifting. Um, I have another really, really good girlfriend that has um, been in the movement space um, with me. And she would put her body on the line to make sure that I would not be harmed. If that is harm from law enforcement because we are protesting in the street, or if that is from vigilantes who are coming out in counter protest to the things that we are you know, protesting. Um, she would put her life, her physical body, in harm's way to protect mine. So that is an example. It seems, you know, very harsh and, and, and to an extreme, but these are the examples of us using our privilege to help those who, who lack privilege. And, and hatred, I, I, don't, I don't have the energy to fight folks who just hate, you know, you've made up your mind. I don't have the energy to fight those individuals, but I do have the time to have conversations with people who just don't know that an implicit bias or a blind spot or a racist behavior is showing up in their everyday lives and they just don't know. Wow. Thank you. Uh, well, you know, talking about, you know, you just mentioned something about the fact that someone that, that has hate, right? You know, unfortunately, when you think about it, right, somebody that hates, you know, they're in essence, having their own mental, you know, issue, because Absolutely. that is, that is coming from some sort of a background, whatever that is, you know, there's some, something that initiated or that triggered that feeling. Yeah. And, and that leads me to two things, uh, stereotypes and uh, the, the role of, let's say the media, the movies, because, uh, because, because, as you listen, I'm, I, I hit 50, so I can tell you I've seen watch a lot of movies <laughs> over the years, and and you know even in movies there's always a joke, you know yeah. the, the the black guy dies dies always in the end of the movie, or there's always some connotation. I think not now, but it used to be more than than you know you didn't have a lot you know uh, of of black you know representation yeah. uh, or other you know uh, representation. And recently you see more of all the spectrum. But back in the days, it was like literally like the bad guy or the right. the, the the drugs or or the, the like whenever there's something bad, you know, it almost the character has to be of a particular right. you know group. That that I think didn't happen. You know, it, I mean, obviously it might have happened intentionally, <laughs> and I'm not even gonna you know get into that that political deal. But at the end of the day, it is reality because we've seen it, yeah. and a lot of people have seen. It. So when people are listening to the show, watching the show. Uh, they're getting information. Yeah. The more they listen to things, the more it becomes reality for them. Yeah. So when you watch movies and that's all you see, you know, that's just like, it's almost repeatedly, you know, the same scenario. You see this particular group, you stereotype them with this particular, you know, this is the behavior, period yeah. and out. You know, uh, you see Latinos, this is the behavior. <laughs> you see Mexicans, you see, you know, you see Muslims, forget it. That they're just, they're the scary people, right? So, so it's like, it's becoming almost, that's the stereotype part that's being designed. Yeah. You know, with, and, and it affects everybody because you're walking the street, you're reactive. And, Absolutely. And I have seen it after 9-11, you walk in the street, you know, you, you know, if you, if someone has a scarf, forget about it. You know, if you if you wear a long dress, like, you know, one of those, those uh, you know, uh, what do you call them? The, the Muslim garments, right? For male. Yeah. Oh, my God. Forget about it. Like, you're, you're forget already about it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not. It's a stereotype. It's not that person. It could be a doctor. It could be an engineer. It could be nothing that, that, that you think of. But because you've seen a picture of what it looks like to be a bad guy. Right. You know, and so that this particular thing is a big deal. I mean for the black community has been a long, long term. I mean, it's just been there for, for a long term. I think we, you know, in, in the Muslim community that, that came in, in in the last two decades and other groups, I mean, you know, you have uh, the the Asians more recently, right? And, right. and I, I think that's been a problem. So so the, the concept of stereotype, cultural sensitivity, as you said with your friend, can you Google it? I mean, people have to do their due diligence to be able to know what to say, not to say. I mean, now that some people say, well, that 
being correctively correct or like, you know, saying the right thing. What is the right thing? Because if right. I sometimes if I say the right thing in front of you, that means I'm sometimes it could be also reactive. Like, well, why do you have to say it that way? <laughs> you wouldn't have said that differently if I was different. Right. Correct. So it creates that, that that psychology. Like if you said it this way, that means you already thought about it. And, and that's that's a problem, because if you really had no intention or no, it didn't you know hit your mind, you wouldn't even have to say it that way because yeah. you're you're very cautious about what the word you're going to say. Yeah. You know, and in the workplace, you see a lot of that because there's trainings of what you can say. Like you can't say black, you say African-American. Right? right. You know, in the black community, you want to say black because you want to pr be proud of it. Right. So so I and I've personally I've seen that both because I have friends and they don't want to be called African-American. I'm black, you know, and I'm proud. Right. And and when you're in the workspace, for example, you you know, if you say it that way, someone can say, why are you saying that? Uh, do you say white? Do you say Latino? It gets a little trickier. Yeah. So, so in your expertise, you know, how do you, you know, kind of mitigate this whole thing? Like, you know, kind of work it out. <laughs> you know, we have to understand where our blind spots are and we have to be honest with ourselves. We all have them. We come to the table, you know, I, my husband and I, I have this debate all the time. Um, he swears that, you know, folks who are in the Asian community just can't drive. And, you know, it could be you pull up on, you know, someone and you make that stereotypic, just dumb statement, like they must be Asian. And I think it's the most insane thing. And I'm like, okay, so every time we turn on the movie and, and the bad guy must be black, right? Because that's what you're making someone feel like if they were to hear you say that. And, and, and this is not to say my husband has lots of friends who uh, he works with lots of Asian, but think about that, that I'm even saying that, right? Mm -hmm. Because we hear that I don't care what community you come from, what your ethnicity is, what your religious background is, your sexual orientation or gender, all of those things don't matter. If we are putting someone into a box based on our own experiences and we don't give people a chance, we're allowing for that stereotype, that blind spot, that implicit bias, we're giving it life. And so I'm asking people not to give it life and get to know people for who they are. And the only way we can do that is to have a conversation, is to be personable, to engage in conversations and be authentic, right? Because unfortunately, we live in a world where we've been told to show up in a certain kind of way. Oh, this is what it means to be professional. Have decorum and only speak this kind of way. And I challenge that constantly because I tell you that uh, Black folks and 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 immigrant folks in this country, indigenous folks have lived in a perpetual cycle of stress that again, impacts your mental health and then impacts your physical health. And that perpetual cycle of stress causes you to show up one day, you might be in a good mood. And on another day, you might get that bad attitude. Like I, I, I equate one of my, um, and I say that she's a shero because I can have a bad attitude sometime because I'm a black woman in America. And so I, when I say this, I give, you know, props to Sandra Bland. May she rest in peace. Because at the end of the day, what killed her was the fact that she was a black woman with an attitude. And don't we always hear that? Is that why is a black woman always loud? Why is she rolling her head? Why is she talking with her hand? Why is that attitude indicative of what or who a black woman can be? And I push back on that and I say, my rage is legitimate. The experiences that I've lived through in this country have caused me to see things. And sometimes because I'm not heard, I got to speak a little bit louder. And then you put me into a box that says, oh, she must be ghetto. And that ghetto connotation means that she must come from the hood. And I got degrees up the YU and, and, and I'm doing well in my family, you know, so I'm able to, while I'm able to, a friend of mine told me today, she has street cred and she got cred, cred right? <laughs> and so that's the reality of what these stereotypes do. We as individuals have the power to debunk them. If we take the opportunity to get to know people as individuals, don't give it life. That's powerful. And you know what? You're right. Because I have a, a very simple formula personally, which is I don't judge anyone because of who they are. I mean, because of what their background is other than who they are and what they show to see. Because there is good and the bad. That's that's a fact. And I still, I still believe there is a lot of good people out there than, than bad people. But I'm not going to judge you just because of your ethnicity, your race, your religion. No, you know, 
when we spoke in, like I, I mentioned about Europe, you know, racism when I was a kid and I saw it, that was just immediately, you're a North African, you're just bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I've seen it even more recently. We were on vacation in France and we were in the store and, and this lady, whenever we walked, she was behind us like a shadow. I'm like, girl, what's up? <laughs> you know, why are you like, you know, over my head, you know, we're shopping yeah. and you're like, you know, you walk in like a shadow of me. If I need something, I'll call you. And I, I spoke, in, oh, you speak English? Yeah, we're Americans. <laughs> oh, and she walked away. I was like, so I went to the guy. I was like, why, why would you do that? I mean, yeah. she explained, well, there are a lot of people that come in and steal stuff. I'm like, well, just because we look this way, that means we are going to steal stuff. Right. I can buy half of this store. Right. <laughs> you know, but that's not the point. But that experience was very recent. And compared to when I was a kid, it's almost the same. It didn't change because some people are still looking at you for who you are, for what you look like. If I speak a language, like we have a joke, my wife and I, if you speak Arabic, you know, you're not educated. You're an immigrant. That's the first thing that you like. If we're talking, this happened to us. We were at Disney one time. And so we were just talking Moroccan, which is a dialect. And uh, so these, these girls, oh, they must be from some country. They're just immigrants. I'm like, do you want me to go after this guy? I tell him what's up. <laughs> you don't want me to get loud with him. But, but you know, as I started life, it's like, you know what? I'm here to have fun. I'm not even going to argue. But yeah. people are ignorant. They just see, they react. They don't even get to, to, to talk to you and find out. If you're curious, ask. You're right. Ask questions. You know, you might be surprised, <laughs> you know. And, and people are good by default. But if you push anybody to the wall, they're going to probably react. That's the bottom line. And that goes anyway. You know, it doesn't have to be with the African-American or the Black community or the, the Latinos or Asian. It's all. You oh. put people... If you put people enough, in, and, and even for the, for the white folks, right, for the, the Caucasian, if you are pushing someone, you know, and you, you stereotype can be as, as well. I mean, people, you know, say bad things about white people, too, you know, to a degree, there's that, that angle. And, and I know we're not talking about it today, but there is that. So at the end of the day, there is good and bad. Do not yeah. judge everybody with the same paintbrush, just, right. just like it's all, they're all the same. Not a blanket no. stroke. Exactly. Right. It's not the way it works. And, and unfortunately, that's a hope. And this leads me to the question for you. In your image, in your, you know, mind, well, how would you reimagine a, a just and fair world? <laughs> you know, a, a real equitable world. If, yeah. if you had it your way, how would you make that, you know, what would be that, that look and feel for that world? Yeah. You know, um, there are some things that we are, I think, as a collective are doing right. And it's going to require us to continue to lean in on those things. And, and so I, I call them the, the ascribe way. I, there are these four or five A's, right? The, the A way, um, my A game. And first it is the, uh, can we agree that racism and all of the other isms have harmed people in this, in this country? And if you can say, mm, yeah, that has happened. Can we acknowledge that harm and trauma has come out of that racist system on a certain group of people. Most people say, yeah, 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 I can, I can acknowledge that. Can we now align our policies, our missions, our visions to humanely address each individual for who they are so that they feel like they are in the fold of and belong to, right? And so when I think of a humane and a just world, it is just that. It is looking at individuals for who they are individually and being fair to understanding the birth and circumstance that they come into this world being. So when I say birth and circumstance, that a person who was born to or raised by a single mother on welfare, there is a birth and circumstance that might shape their outcome. It doesn't say they, there's only one outcome, but there's a potential that it might shape their outcome. If a person is an immigrant and they have to learn English when they get to this country, that birth and circumstance could shape their outcome. And so we have to get down to the reality that regardless of birth and circumstance, one, in order to be equitable, in order to be, um, to create this utopia, so to speak, that is anti-racist, we have to give people opportunity. And opportunity looks like, in my opinion, recognizing the fact that all people, one, are trainable, 
And so the opportunity should be, be given to us all. It's so super easy to fall back on the sense that I'm going to hire somebody who looks just like me, the good old boy system, right? That's been allowed to be perpetuated in this country for far too long. And so with that being said, we have to get out of the norms. We have to recognize that these are hangups and that these are killing folks and these are causing these you know, places not to be as diverse and, and equitable and inclusive as we say we want them to be. And so in order to do that work and to really be committed to it, we have to step outside of us, the individual, and make sure that we are affording an opportunity for everyone to come to the table, to have a voice, to understand their agency and the agency of everyone else at that table. Because too often, what we've allowed to continue in this country is the silencing, the othering, the erasure, the change, the false narrative of who and how and why. Um, you know, the perfect example is, you know, last month there was quote unquote Columbus Day and a lot of schools pushed back and said, we're not going to celebrate Columbus Day anymore. But the push wasn't that we just not celebrate Columbus Day. The push was, or the push is for me as an educator is that we want you to tell the truth about Columbus and the indigenous people who were then decimated because Columbus came with diseases, because Columbus came and he was violent, because Columbus came and he raped folks and murdered folks. Tell the truth. Right. And so you took a holiday away from kids who are like, oh, my God, we got this day coming up and we have, it's a holiday. You took that away from a lot of kids across this country and didn't replace it with Indigenous People Day because you didn't want to give credit to the people who were most marginalized in that situation. So we have to step outside of the norm that has literally and figuratively been killing people in this country. And when we step outside of that, we have to get out of our way. You know, we have to tell young people, sometimes they throw temper tantrums. Um, you are in your own way of progress. Um, and so that's how we get to a just and humane um, society. That means when we go to the doctor, uh, Serena Williams, who is a millionaire, wouldn't get turned away when she's bleeding internally and could literally die because doctors are traditionally trained to believe that Black women can't have a higher threshold of pain, right? When you go and you are look at neighborhoods across this country that are being gentrified and people are being pushed out, right? What does that look like? How do we then bring equity back into that conversation? When we are looking at the glass ceiling and, and every industry across this country, who can matriculate up to those higher upper management positions and leadership positions? And if we're willing to make those kind of changes, a lot of corporate companies have said after George Floyd, we're going to throw billions of dollars at, you know, racial justice and, and, and equity building within our organizations, but they haven't put their money where their mouth is. And I do this work on it as an everyday thing. And I consider myself being an expert in brokering equity. But what I'm seeing as an outcome is a, a, a use of power and that power is the dollar. Mm -hmm. to hush people and we cannot we can no longer be in a world where hush money silences us any longer that's what humanity and justice looks like that's pretty deep and i think i think that that would be the ideal world yeah. and i think i think we're still working towards that and i hope that in in the very near future that happens i agree with you in, in the concept of humans should be all equal not should be they are equal yeah. You know, the circumstances can be modified, you know, and, and by the way, everybody, when they're created, they might have a different, you know, birth, you know, concept. I mean, it's not a lot of it, for example, with the immigrants, right? A lot of people were born, whatever they were born, they didn't choose to be born there. Right. <laughs> and and some people are born, like my kids were born here. There was no choice. They were born here. So that right. that's that's the only different thing for them and me, for example, just as, as being, you know, a generation, uh, an immigrant, right? So... But between the two, they have different access than, for example, I had, right? And and so it that's just that's what it is. But those circumstances should not dictate how the world is being looked at in terms of equality, right? That's one. Two, your concept, which is a unique concept, monsters and aliens, and I'd like to talk about that. <laughs> so so you know it's funny because, you know, I, again I'm a movie buff and I love to watch you know, alien movies. And, you know, I, I love those movies for one simple fact. You know, it's funny because we always look at the aliens that they're going to come in as bad people and they're going to come and destroy us. If anything, psychologically speaking, I think we are actually, you know, thinking we're the inferior race because we think that if they travel light speed and come here, they're going to be stronger and they're going to wipe us out. Because we think about the jungle, right? The, the powerful will eat the, the, the weak. So we always think, 
you know, these guys are smart. If they were out there and they're, they're smart enough to come here, they're not, they, they definitely can wipe us out if they wanted to, but that's not there. They might not, that's probably why they're not here yet because they right. think we're not ready. Right. <laughs> but, but, but the fact when you see sci-fi movies and you look at aliens, you know, that's the only time where you see humans get together as one. And, and a good example is Independence Day, for example, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I love that movie. But but that's a, that, that that message was that message in that movie was the greatest thing for me as far as as a humanity. Yeah. That's when humanity only becomes one because we're facing a threat, even in the pandemic, like right. Right. Finally, everybody got together for a minute. You know, we were good because we were facing this. You know, everybody in the same see. boat. Exactly. Everybody is the same. We we all looked at each other like, oh my god. Where is that? That's where we need to be. Uh, and I think I think when we start realizing these concepts, I mean, we can rise, you know, above this. I mean, we just still caught up into it. And you're right, because there's prejudices, there is things that are instilled in us over years and centuries of literally seeing things, hearing things, and it just, and you got, you know, some people, they're literally, like, for example, like, good example, when my kid s talks about, you know, kids making fun of him because of his name or his background, you know, it's funny because the only reason he, those kids are saying that is because they hear it somewhere. Yeah. You know, and, and frankly, I mean, the only way they hear it is through their families maybe, or, yeah. you know, they, so they bring in the message of what they're being, you know, told in, in, in their environment. And so I know that, you know, those folks are probably looking at us like we're the, these, these aliens for real, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, but it's, it's funny because, you know, you come to see me. I'm not that alien. I'm just me. <laughs> Hello. You know, and, and that's the difference. You know, we, we're not seeing that fact, you know, we're not really focusing on what really matters and a good, good example for us that should be awakening for all of us listening and watching is that a virus that is microscopic. We can't even see it. We can't even, you know, understand it. And it's still, it killed millions, you, you know, know. had, ha had defeated humanity. You know, yeah. to a degree, we still we still kind of figure it out, right? And that's that's how weak we are. So instead of us having these lame, you know, differences and fighting, you know, because of race and other things, let's look at us. How do we make this world better? Now, that's that's a that's a beautiful message that we'd like to keep the world with, but I know it's not reality. <laughs> and yeah. it, you know, it's ideal. That's where we want eventually to get. Uh, but unfortunately, that is that is you know where we are today. You are writing this book. Monsters and Aliens, and I, I, I'm gonna, I, I want to hear it. I want to see that book when it's out. When is it actually going to be due? So we are, um, we are in our final stages, and w my goal is to have it finally produced. Everything I have, my artist who's working on um, all of the design and stuff, and it will be out first quarter 2022. So even though I, my, in my mind, I envision January, February. My birthday's in February, so it would be awesome if I can have like a book, a beautiful book release on my birthday. But I'm giving myself grace that I have the entire first quarter, which will end in March. So by the end of March, the book will be on stores, shelves um, to be purchased on Amazon or, you know, wherever books are sold. But um, yeah, Monsters and Aliens, it is, it has been a long time in the making. It has been a story that lots of people have told me over the years, you need to tell that story. And so I'm glad that I finally have the opportunity to do it. Um, it is, it's like a baby. It's like, you know, this is very personal. And, and, and so I I know that part of me has kept it so guarded for so long um, because we live in a world where we are hugely judged by the things that we do and we say. And so I am 50 this year. And so I'm now at this point in my life where I don't care so much about what other people's opinions are. My focus is being as authentic as I can, being as unapologetic about my feelings and the way I show up as I can, and being intentional about my self-care. Because if I can't manage taking care of Sonia, I can't take care of my babies, I can't take care of my husband, I can't take care of my parents or my community and my business. So. Um, that's the important piece about letting go and being vulnerable. And we all have st stories, right? We all come from some birth and circumstance that can potentially help someone else. And I would encourage other people to share their stories. Tell your story. That's the thing that has, I think, another part that has hindered our country so much is that we only have listened to certain stories. 
And so now we get to diversify it. We get to, you know, look at it from a lens of all people have value and we're going to bring those things to the table. Well, listen, there's, there's been a real, you know, I just looked at a time and we've, we've, we've passed the hour mark. But but really, it, it listen. It's, it's it's a great discussion, and there's yeah. more to it. We can talk for hours about this, and you know, uh, the concept of monsters. I mean, you as a child seeing your teacher as a monster, that's an experience that a lot of people are seeing every day. Uh, and and maybe today is a little different because I think the school system has become a lot more, I guess, appealing and lighter and 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 you know, accepting you know, so on and so forth compared to I guess the 70s and 80s yeah. or even the 60s. But but it's still again we still can do more and more and more to get better Absolutely. and better at it, uh, and and you know by the way that that story of the monsters is is everybody's story because I think we all have monsters that we've we experienced. all have a monster in our <laughs> life yes <laughs> you know so whether you're an adult you're a kid there is that and and you know what the ideal eventually is that it will be no monsters no right. aliens will be just one human kind equal. Absolutely. And the only difference should be if you're good at what you are doing, you should, you know, get whatever you need to be. Nothing can stop you other than the fact that you're not able to do it because someone has beat you to it rightfully and not because of a privilege or because of anything else. Uh, And yeah, again, circumstances will always vary. And eventually, hopefully we'll get to that world. And I want to live in that world, to be honest. I want to live in that world. And I think everybody watching and listening, and and by the way, this show goes all over the world. So there are people that can relate to this in any other part of the world because they have the same circumstances today. Absolutely. So, so, so before we end the show, uh, Sonia, what would be a very, you know, just deep message you want to send to our audiences and people watching and listening right now? Ooh, so... I would just, I mean, I, I do what I do because I have babies and I realize that they're going to have babies and, and my legacy is important. My integrity is important. And so when I show up, I, my expectation is that other people ha- are afforded the opportunity to show up in their, um, their best versions of themselves. And the only way that we can be the best versions of ourselves is to be open um, to listening. And, and listening isn't always with your ears, it's with your heart. And so that's the the final message that I would leave with folks is listen with your heart and and don't let what anyone else has um, told you about the world and people shape the outcomes or the possibility because the possibility is great. We in this country in particular, the world, but in this country in particular, we are in a resource rich situation. And so I just don't live my life from a, a perspective of deficit. And so when we start to shape that um, and let that come into fruition, I think that it would afford us the opportunity to actually listen with our hearts. That's it. I'm going to leave it at that. That's powerful. And I think that's a a very, very deep and and strong message for everyone watching and listening. So please, let's take that to heart, literally. Yeah. (laughs) And and, and apply it because you'll be seeing a world in in a different light. That's the bottom line. So, well, listen, Sonia, it was a pleasure and honor, and uh, we had a great exchange here. Thank you. I hope that our listeners and viewers can really benefit from the discussion and, and understand that, you know, if we make the change, you know, our mental state will be better. Our health will be better. There will be less problems in our society, uh, less, less murders, less crazy, less everything, right? And be more positive, more, re- more results, more growth, more, I guess, you know, wealth. Uh, and that's the bottom line. Yep. So. Well, Sonia, thank you for, for being with us on the show. It, it's been great. It's been my uh, honor. Oh, the honor's mine. Folks, thank you for watching and listening on iHeartRadio. Uh, this is Hurricane Age. We'll be talking soon. Different show, different topic, different guest. Bye for now. <laughs>